Hey everyone, my name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. Today we're talking about an album that I grew up listening to, well, mostly just the first four songs, over and over and over again. Because, frankly, what baby wouldn't love the jauntiness and playfulness of Ska, and what American baby who listened to Ska in the late 90s didn't love, you guessed it, Let's Face It by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Ah, ska. It's a divisive genre, to say the least. It's a little goofy, it's a little silly, it's got some horns, it's got some reggae, it's got some punk, and more often than not, the lead singer is arguably on a really fine line between singing and shouting. But the boss tones carved out a place for themselves in the late section of the third wave ska resurgence, catapulting themselves to fairly decent success and recognition. I mean, if you were on the radio in the late 90s, it's likely you may have heard this riff. Or this chorus. You may even recognize them as the frat house band in the movie Clueless, if you're more of a classic movie aficionado. But what about this album, let's face it? Well, this being by far their breakout success, it may be interesting to note that it was already their fifth studio album, released in 1997 by Mercury Records. Now, Mercury Records is no small-time record label, so by this point, they had already been doing some numbers, but this album absolutely skyrocketed, at least in terms of ska alt-rock at the time. Chart-wise, it only reached 27th in the US and Australia, 40th in the UK, but some of its singles fared a little better, with Impression That I Get, the song I just played, reaching better than 25th in four separate US charts and first in Canadian rock. The album, reaching its 25th anniversary this year, has achieved platinum status in the US, and many of the album reviews at the time and since have been fairly glowing. Now, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones themselves have had an interesting run of it, forming 14 years prior in 1983, and have since become recognized as some of the earliest influence for genre-bending ska and punk, at least for the third wave, working to tie the two together in a way that is hard for many people to distinguish from original, pure ska. The Boss Tones version of Ska is often thought of first for most people, and with 11 studio albums under their belt, a 39-year career minus a four-year hiatus that only came to a close earlier this year, 2022, and a completely non-Googleable number of album records sold, but likely a decent amount, it's no surprise that they were that influential. The band was originally formed out of an amalgamation of seven disparate band members and has had 15 different members come in and out over its nearly 40-year run, but only four people were a part of it all. Singer Dickie Barrett, bassist Joe Gittleman, Johnny Vegas on tenor sax, and Ben Carr as the onstage performer slash dancer. They've performed around 250 concerts around the world, doing so quite routinely in full suit jackets and dress pants. And not only that though, they've also dedicated quite a number of their concerts, tours, etc. to important topics, anti-racism and cancer research among them, dedicated to their community and fans. Now, you may be asking, what is ska at all? And well, to be accurate to the boss tones and fair to the bands that came before, the boss tones were not 100% totally and completely ska. In fact, as we described before, they infused a lot of punk and alternative heavier rock elements into the ska formula to create their own subgenre and sound. Ska itself was a precursor to reggae, developed in Jamaica in the mid-1900s as a mixture between R&B and Caribbean calypso. Its heavy emphasis on bass lines and the iconic reggae offbeat rhythm were key features, but over time it grew and developed much like R&B into variations that combined other genres until it was nearly unrecognizable to its original formulation. Punk elements were quickly merged into it and sped up the tempo, bringing the style into the form it exists 
Jackson today. And frankly, Ska isn't dead, as much as was to be believed for the past 20 years. New hints are showing up on the radio, and it's possible we're on the cusp of a new wave, a fourth wave, and it'll be interesting to see what's in store. But before we start looking ahead to the future, let's look at the past for a second here and talk about 1997, the peak of the American interest in ska and this episode's album, Let's Face It by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. There's a bit of goofiness to ska that is difficult for some people to parse. The music operates in a bizarre intersection between rock, punk, reggae, pop, and jazz that lends itself to a type of jauntiness that feels at times, for lack of a better term, cheesy. And for a good portion of these bands and their songs, their music and lyrics do tend to exist primarily on the surface. The lyrics have meaning, but the meaning is not typically steeped in dense metaphor or poetic facsimile, rather exposing the truth in plain words or word replacement metaphor. This mixture of the springy music and the straightforwardness of their lyrics tends to culminate in something that feels like it could be easily dismissible. But the problem here is that, as always, we want to avoid being reductive. And as we've said many times before, music or entertainment that is simple is not worthless. And let's face it goes a step further by having its lyrics be exceptionally political. After all, one of the biggest factors of third wave ska is punk. And more than anything else, this album, underneath its popular first half and firmly entrenched in the darker second half, is anarchic and rebellious, progressive and critical. Take no further look than the namesake of the album, let's face it. The fifth song and turning point in the album from traditional ska to more harder punk rock influence. We sure weren't put here to hate. Be racist, be sexist, be bigots, be sure. We won't stand for your hate. There's power to this sentiment, to be openly and unabashedly calling out modern problems. By refusing to hide these ideas in layered imagery or the foliage of poetry, they're taking a stronger stance, actively calling out and highlighting problems that they see. This isn't simple for the sake of easier writing, it's simple for the sake of effectiveness. This theme is integral to the album, a common thread of commenting on societal issues that carries through over 75% of the songs, each being a different filter from which to analyze and comment on inadequacies in dealing with resolving these issues or criticisms on the way they are perpetuated by society. But as it stands, they all act within a similar framework, but seem to not have a defining structure. Now, it could be argued that being a punk-adjacent album, the sheer fact that there would be a structure is antithetical to punk itself, and while that may be the intention, there is still choice that leads to this current layout. In addition, there are very apparent timbered delineations between the first and second half of the album that evoke a sense of purpose behind their separation. Take a listen to the sound of the first song and the last song in the album to hear this difference. One is much faster, brighter, and one is much darker and aggressive. Exactly half of the album exists in each space, with the second half beginning in another drinking song, which is arguably not a very fun drinking song. However, it's easy to get the impression that the album exists outside of a single story, or even a selection of stories like many of the albums we've covered. Instead, we get an idea much more similar to Jewel's Pieces of You or Rush's Power Windows, which cover an overarching idea and present their themes through the organization of 
songs in the album. So let's gather some of the themes in individual songs and see if we can't collect some connecting threads. We're going to bounce back and forth between the two halves to help tie them together. Noise Brigade is a song filled with contradiction and idiomatic speech that references common sayings and strings them together in a way that rides the line between meaningless and meaning, covering topics as ranged as job proficiency to nihilism to conformity and community. It's raucous and fast, never sticking to one idea for long, other than the band's general feeling of fame unimportance and personal importance. Another drinking song covers vices, specifically alcoholism, and how they can morph into an addiction that is apparent to both those with the addiction and to those who witness it. The addiction is one that they understand as a cure, but hardly remember what it was the cure to, turning itself into its own remedy. Rascal King is about how fame and infamy can be very difficult to tell apart, especially if the general point of the rapscallion behavior is at the behest of providing services for one's community. This is an interesting song because it's unclear whether or not the band is supporting this behavior, or rather just pointing to it as merely evocative. Number for Days is a really upsettingly relevant song regarding an individual radicalized to be violent and aggressive toward those who disagree or even to random people. However, the boss tones are very clear here that this type of behavior will come back to haunt you. Even those who supported you will turn tides the instant their or your actions come back to bite you. And finally, for now, Royal Oil is a song about the negative effects of drug use and addiction, specifically heroin here. And that's really it. It's pretty direct and very clear. So that's three vice songs, one mortality, fatalistic meaning of life song, and one about the fine line between using shady tactics to create effective solutions and just being a criminal, the whole do the ends justify the means conversation. So these are all covering pretty serious topics, ones that shine lights on societal issues that have complicated solutions or involve dense material. But the two halves are covering these themes in wildly different ways. It could be said that the second half of the album is actually a dark reflection of the first half, a more direct and incessant take on the subjects following the lack of change or the lack of consideration. In fact, every song on the album has a light and dark version, sister songs that cover the same or similar topics in antonymic tones and themes. And we see this clearly in Royal Oil and Nevermind Me. Royal Oil, Come On Bubble and Boil, Stab Like Dagger, Will Make You Stagger on a Hot Tin Foil. Two, Possessed by an Addiction I Don't Have to Comprehend, What About Me, Well He Whipped Me With a Gun. There's a very clear language change here from the jaunty type of metaphor or poetry to very specific indications of violence perpetrated by a tragic drug situation. The music is much more forceful as well, as we've indicated between the change between these two halves. But why structure the album this way at all? Why would they deliberately obscure the true intention of the album, or at the very least, a key part of it within the back half, or in vinyl speak, the B side? Some of you may be ahead of me, but to break it down more transparently, it's probably a good idea now to look at the album artwork. And at first glance, it looks a little plain. The album has a stark white background with the band's name emblazoned across the top half in a near sketch-like font that looks like a bad image trace, bits of white peeking between the red fill and black stroke of each letter. The full band appears in the bottom right, looking up at the listener with little flair or staging. The album's title sits small next to the band placed almost as an afterthought, like a sticker put on the cover, used as a balancing tool rather than a key component, exceptionally understated. Understated, that's an important word here. This whole cover is understated. Even the back of the record has just the song names, their runtime, some legal information, and presumably a sister picture to the one on the front, showing the band's members' backs in just a slightly different organization. And that's likely the point, this understatement. In a world that even now argues for the removal of politics from any form of discourse that isn't inherently just a political discussion, the solution is often to include 
conversations on social justice reform or consideration as veiled in metaphor, vague or abstract, or in this case, as almost traps. By making the album appear as simple and unproblematic as possible, it is more likely that the band will be able to surprise more listeners with their coverage of important topics than they otherwise may have done by advertising it in the beginning. This is also likely why the first half is more veiled or lighter, as many people who used to buy music in the 90s would likely only preview the first few songs to see if they were into the sound before purchasing, if they were to preview it at all. This is all incredibly punk, but there's a bit more to this dark reflection than just to attract unsuspecting listeners. One of the proponent features of many societal reform campaigns, from civil rights to women's rights to gay rights, is the reluctant escalation of the intensity of those calling for reform. At first, the majority of supporters are afraid to commit to that support for fear of retaliation. Then, at the onset of a truly horrific action, some are emboldened to start defending the movement, albeit often with still the same fear or reluctance as before. Quickly, these movements often soften until another earth-shattering horror takes place. Then, they are emboldened further, angry at this continuing to happen. But turning to violence, channeling that anger, is seen as antithetical to the cause, thought to diminish the opinion. And again, as often before, those who fail to have any real sense of moral right and wrong would fail to listen. And this cycle would continue and grow and develop until those supporting the movement to grant equality to those oppressed, and more pointedly, those oppressed themselves, would reach a breaking point of anger and frustration that any weaker person would have lost control of lifetimes ago. This then leads to full-blown riot and destruction that could have easily been avoided if those in power had even a shred of empathy. And well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the point is that there are periods of rebellion or reform that exist before violence, but ones that are often ignored. And the album, circling back to the point, acknowledges that and mirrors it. The first half of the album is this softer, gentler phase. This quiet pointing out of the problems calls for action that at most tread on the side of peaceful protest, like let's face it. Then, the back half introduces the darker theme, and we get anger and violence that in one instance even points to how those with this senseless hatred or bigotry described in Let's Face It are running out of time, like on numbered days. Time's running out and the tables will turn. A near call for rebellion. So preliminarily, we've reached a bit of a consensus on the goal of the album. Its main themes of vice, society, morality, and purpose, and its structure. And in doing all of this, we've reached that first draft through line we always find right about here in the episode. One of an album that lures a listener in with the promise of a fun and lighthearted romp through punk-adjacent topics, like the relatable uncertainty of the singer's place in the world, only to turn everything on its head and make clear calls for change and the consequential problems if we don't. An album that describes the density and texture of real-world problems and includes the importance of self-awareness and growth to the betterment of society as a whole. So how does this fit into a story, track by track, from beginning to end? Well, why wait any longer? We, of course, begin with Noise Brigade. This song is a bit obtuse to begin the album. As we mentioned before, it's littered with sayings and idioms or proverbs that are meant to evoke a sense of progression or determination, but has no explanation or guiding line. The first verse sees the protagonist struggle with what his purpose is, waxing about how he doesn't really have a trade, any real-world training that would be useful. As a result, he views himself as a dime for a dozen, a bit of a mixed retelling of the phrase a dime a dozen, implying that he is incredibly average. But there's a bit of a silver lining here. He is aware that he could keep living the hustle, pushing forward, zero to 60 and stop on a dime. But he understands that ultimately, it won't really matter in the end. And even though the only thing he can provide is noise, the noise of his band and their bombastic quality, it's noise that he is passionate about, has connection to, and can love through, as seen in The Bridge. On the brighter side, 
The noise, well, it's just love that gets caught in my throat. This song introduces the singer and the band as people who understand their role in the musical landscape and understand their place as a band in a world of different occupations and lifestyles and needs. But it also introduces them as people who care about their music and subsequently care about the message they portray to the people who listen, their fans, their connecting threads to the community and surroundings. However, in the next song, The Rascal King, this idea of mortality, consequence, and intention are complicated by the introduction of what it means to be famous and successful, if at the cost of questionable means. The song on the surface seems to be fairly celebratory of this figure, someone who never ceased to amaze on a regular basis. The song is playful and high energy, evoking the confidence of someone who is able to command respect through his dichotomic ability to be calm and collected and good in a scrap if the need arose. However, the song never goes so far as to justify the actions. Despite toying around with the idea with lines like we described before, never does the song explicitly say that he was in the right to perform his tasks in the way that he did. But there is a hint of moral grayness that is introduced in this song that comes into play later, especially with the dark half of the album. Take a listen to the bridge. A hero or a hooligan, well that part's never clear. Pride or shame, it's all the same, who's innocent and who's to blame. The groundwork is being laid out to imply that some actions are difficult to parse with morality in the pursuit of beneficial side effects, such as the problems to crack and mouths to feed. Here, the balance of at what point the ends actually do justify the means is being calibrated. And Royal Oil introduces one of the first Vice stories in the album, and in response to the previous song and its moral fluidity, attempts to directly confront drug users for their addiction, coming just shy of blaming them for their own ruin. The song plays it off with the light nature of the song, swinging and almost pub-like, sung in that similar way to a shanty. But the subject matter is rather dark, implying that these drug users, specifically heroin users, are likely to spoil their mind and end up sleeping down in the soil, a reference to, well, death and being buried. This blame can sometimes be damaging to the individual with an addiction, turning the cycle into one that they almost believe they deserve because they can't find the strength or the courage to do what everyone tells them is the simple solution. And we get a small inkling of awareness in the way that the song is constructed. For the vast majority of the album, the lead singer sings at the forefront of the choral mix or even alone, taking the dominant voice. However, different from many of the other songs, he joins a mixture of voices for a good portion of the words, even once placing himself into an echo mix near the end that exists below the main melody. This is a lot like Stay the Night from Hivemind, the album we covered two episodes ago. Rather than presenting the view of a single person or entity, we get the mass of society, a group of individuals singing the same idea in unison. The band isn't firmly stating that this approach to addiction is the correct one, and it is obvious that the band is anti-drug use, or at least anti-heroin. But by pushing the singers into a stand-in for others, they begin conversation on this being the predominant reaction by society and introduce doubt on whether this is the best practice, much like they did in The Rascal King. But in the impression that I get, we switch gears briefly and ever so slightly. This is 
the ska song from the late 90s, at least in the U.S. It has nearly become ubiquitous with American ska, and for good reason. It's an enjoyable and catchy song. But that catchiness masks a very particular message. The concept of knocking on wood is one that is a fairly common superstition in America and beyond, especially Europe, the practice dating back to at least the 1800s, with some arguments on any origins predating that. But no matter the actual birth of the saying, whether it be a reference to the belief that protective spirits dwelled within trees, to the rules of a playground game, the idea is meant to invoke protection from harm especially one that may have been brought into existence through the very utterance of its possibility. You say something that you avoided or hope to avoid in the future, and consequently say knock on wood or actually knock on something wooden, depending on your level of superstition, to help ensure that it is avoided. And in this song, the singer is implying that their life hasn't encountered a situation so dire as to require knocking on wood, making him unsure if he has the skills to succeed should a problem arise, or whether he has the lived experience to know when he should be wary of a problem in the future. His life's been easy, and he's not sure how he'll fare when it isn't. Beyond this, however, we are introduced into another variation of what we talked about in the last song, a tie into the knowledge that the method introduced there wasn't incredibly effective, but was often the one most invoked. For those who have lived an easy life, or easier by comparison, it is difficult to place yourself into the shoes of someone who has had a more difficult time. Not understanding the pain and suffering of addiction, bigotry, racism, sexism, etc. often causes a disconnect with the level of empathy that those incapable of understanding are capable of feeling. And as a consequence, those who can't understand because they've never had to experience it are much more likely to pursue solutions that make sense with their their lived experience, but don't gel with the reality of the situation. There are countless examples of this, but Royal Oil has already introduced one, with the attempt to use blame or shame to curb addiction. But the impression that I get again introduces some complexity that signals an awareness from the band. We see this at the end of the song, the relatively soft repeating of the chorus over the playout. Rather than just saying, never had to knock on wood, as he had done before, the singer keeps repeating, never had to, I'd better knock on wood. Take a quick listen. That small lyrical shift points to a shift in the thinking of the song, one that wants to better understand the reasons for knocking on wood, and more broadly, a desire to understand and empathize with those who struggle, those who need to knock on wood in the first place. And let's face it, seize the first fruits of that labor. Well, it's so hot to face that in this day and age, somebody's race can trigger somebody's race, somebody's preference can drive some total stranger. That change. There is work here toward empathy and fighting for change in a song that is very saliently about prejudice and doing your part to help stop it from happening. There's really not a whole lot to say about this song beyond that. It's worth a listen just for the sheer fact that it is so open about this rebellion against bigotry, being an essential part of a better society, and shame on us for not having done something about it sooner how it couldn't be any wronger in this age and day. Now, this line does exist in a thought-provoking section of the music. The entire verse that line caps off relays a rather aggressive rebuff to a fairly common argument against social change, especially social change that is deemed extreme by the very people perpetuating the prejudice. Often, an argument against progress is that progress is asking for too much, not entering into a discussion about some compromise that can be reached. And this song, this verse especially, is very clearly saying that, no, you're wrong. There is no gray area. There is no compromise for equality. And this actual change from the societal meandering over solutions is noticed in the following song, That Bug Bit Me. This is the final song in the first, lighter half of the album, but we are already getting some hints to a more rock-focused, heavier, distorted second half with the timbre of this song. It's still fairly bright, don't get me wrong, but it contains foreshadowing to that shift. 
And there really is no better way to cap off this side than with a song about how this change, this actual helpful change, can happen and move through anyone, and that it doesn't come at the cost of some perceived aspect of strength. Weakness isn't created through promoting kindness. If it wasn't already clear, the bug being talked about is kindness, anti-prejudice, being an ally, being feminist, being someone who actually cares about the people around them, no matter how they were born or choose to identify. Frankly, it just kind of boils down to not being an asshole. Listen to the chorus here. The bug's been around since time began. It's bitten bigger, badder bastards than the one I am. This song is such a surprising piece of introspection into the singer's psyche, not far off from implying that he was possibly less of a good person prior to having this realization. It may be the case that he had biases or qualms, and it could be possible that he was just outright racist, but the idea stands that he was able to change, given that realization. Now, he even admits that it was a difficult change, one that crippled and paralyzed, but is adamant that he now loves the effects. And his hope is that by saying that a realization to care for your fellow member on Earth could happen to him, and even arguably worse people than him, then it could likely happen to anyone. But he's not perfect, and really, how can anyone be? And so we rapidly find ourselves in the dark half of the album with another drinking song. This is the first sister song on the album, and arguably the most tenuous of a connection to its partner, That Bug Bit Me. These two on the surface don't seem to have a whole lot in common. One about changing for the better, and one about succumbing to an all-consuming addiction that one knows is self-destructive. However, it does possibly grant us a little insight into that past that caused him to be problematic before, while also providing some realistic texture to show that even committing to change can still be an imperfect and difficult process. He reached a rather low moment here, blindly ignoring advice, likely advice similar to that of Royal Oil, and has almost been knocked to his knees and down to the floor, a bit of a vague callback to the references in Royal Oil to being buried or dead. And it's possible that this rock bottom is now what granted him the realization in That Bug Bit Me, and the ability to better have that empathy missing from Royal Oil and found in the impression that I get. Like I said, it's a bit of a grasping connection, but it does have echoes that carry over into the next song. Numbered Days. Oh boy. This one is uncomfortably relevant to today. The obvious sister song to Let's Face It, and the song in the album with the most violent implications. Just take a listen to the end of verse 2, but do so with a slight warning to violent imagery. It's not nearly as bad as Daddy from Jewel's Pieces of You, but skip the next 20-ish seconds if you need. Somebody crossed the path at the worst time to do it. Toes to the devil and it didn't live through it. He's got a group of friends and they'll target and they A description is being painted here of a group of people who are looking for trouble, looking for a fight, and excitedly willing to snuff out life should the opportunity present itself. And this song is having absolutely none of that. Rather than the call to everyone to change described in Let's Face It, this is a warning. A warning that refusing to understand the ramifications of your violence, your hatred, your evil, will lead to consequences and ultimately the full and complete abandonment of everyone you thought was on your side. Because vile behavior does not thrive in a vacuum, nor does it succeed in a culture that cultivates consequences for that behavior. Much like the push to actually indict and imprison some recent individuals that have been almost without a shadow of a doubt, confirmed to commit crimes or, at minimum, caused the escalation of violence toward marginalized groups, showing consequences helps quell these trends. And in Break So Easily, we get, well, I get confused. This song I just can't unravel very well, it seems. 
but I'll do my best to present my theories. Now, to help find the footing, it is the sister song to Impression That I Get, a mirror from the empathy that was found in that song to a position here of almost hyper-awareness in how the other person handles and is affected by situations. Later in the song, we also get a point toward that individual losing their life. You took the answers when you broke, so easily you're gone. There is an apparent grief in losing them, with references to this as a harsh, sudden reality, a painful possibility. Now, it's unclear as to what actually caused this person to lose their life, but there is a reference to a flash after which nothing's been the same. But what about everything surrounding this story? He makes reference to lines they crossed that you didn't provide me, talking about the lines being impossibly fine and easily erased. I think that there's two possibilities here. The line itself being just death, an inexplainable event leading to him being almost frustrated that they couldn't have warned him or prepared him, a senseless act of violence causing irreversible damage. Or it has something to do with internal struggle and addiction. This individual was falling into a spiral that they couldn't recover from and refusing help along the way, refusing him access past that line, only to end up in a dangerous situation stemming from that need for drugs or whatever their vice was. And we see one variation of this shakeup, this second interpretation in Nevermind Me. In this instance, the drug user was the aggressor in the situation, but as the main character in the song points out, it could also be the addiction that is the aggressor. Obviously, this is the sister song to Royal Oil, but here we've gained that element of empathy. In each verse, the character makes it clear that the person robbing him is under the influence of an all-encompassing and debilitating desire to get a fix, one not necessarily aligned to their actual personal desires or even just basic needs, with the main character even going so far as to say that he seemed to hate what he was doing. And in the chorus, the main character preaches that he's fine. The addict didn't take anything irreplaceable, didn't do any permanent damage, didn't leave any lasting impact. So never mind him. Instead, focus on the individual who is struggling, the one who is saddled with a condition they can't escape. This is miles ahead of the rhetoric in Royal Oil in terms of the steps taken to highlight the problem in society and also clearly demonstrate a firm stance of avoiding turning victims of a damaged and uncaring system into villains. And finally, in Desensitized, the album slams into its climax. This is a relatively short song, in fact the shortest on the album, but we find the culmination of everything before leading to here. Take a listen to the back half chorus in its entirety here. It shouldn't have occurred. We're desensitized to all the scandals and the cover-ups, conspiracies and lies. There's no beating around the bush here. This song is furious and adamant about change. There are references to many of the songs preceding, including the loss of a friend from Break So Easily, the mortality of a routine life in Noise Brigade, the senseless violence mentioned through Numbered Days and Nevermind Me, the sudden realization of the need for change from That Bug Bit Me, and more. It has all led to this point, and there are near-violent, near-aggressive calls for that movement, ones that mirror the gray ideology from the sister song Rascal King. These issues can be avoided, he yells. 
but it requires we actually do something about it rather than continue to accept and buy into the shoddy explanations of the people who refuse or would rather not do anything to fix it. And that's really where the album ends. 128 is the true closer, but as a sister song to Noise Brigade, it does more to play out the album than introduce any new ideas. One, two, what's in the studio? It even plays with the same kind of idiomatic word soup that Noise Brigade does, slamming different proverbs or sayings together into an amalgamation of sentiment. But one thing it does surprisingly clearly, as a kind of send-off after Desensitized, is present a type of choral blending that Royal Oil did in its chorus. This is used as a way to show hope for a future where many more people, east, west, north, south, all over, stop and realize the snake oil peddled around them, the nonsense explanation for the continuation of solvable problems and learn to accept the melting pot, the stew described in the chorus, and realize that everyone together, equal, cultures and ideas and philosophies and lives mixing, honestly tastes pretty great. And that's where the album ends. This manifestation of the different reflections of the world around them and the different facets of coming to terms with it. With the idea that life is hard enough and short enough as it is without needing to add and perpetuate solvable crises. Senseless acts of violence, addiction, bigotry, prejudice, evil, all of these things are antithetical to the very nature of a well-functioning and complex textured society, and it is well within the power of everyone to notice this, work to change, and pass that change, that bug, onto others. And frankly, the Boston's are not going to take no for an answer, and neither should we. Stick around after the break for a conversation about the album. Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done talking about the album, and now we're going to have a conversation about what the artist has said about the album, what fans have said about the album, as always. And with me, I have a special guest, a returning guest from the first episode of the podcast, my dad, Matthew. Welcome. Thank you for joining. Hello. Thank you for having me back. I apologize to the listening crowd. I'm on the backside of the coronavirus, so probably sound a little bit different. A little hoarse, a little blah, but... Uh... It Make adds it texture. Ah, yes. <laughs> Basically, I sound like a three-pack-a-day smoker. I'll try to try to keep that up for uh, audio judo purposes. You've got the growl that uh, the lead singer of Boston's has. Oh, right. Dickie Barry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Of course. This is an interesting album because I went through a long period of time where I didn't listen to this album, but when I was younger, I listened to this album a lot. Yeah. How exactly did you get into this band? And then subsequently, like, what was the decision for introducing it to me at such a young age? Because I, I know that we <laughs> listened to this album so much. <laughs> we listened to this album a lot. I think primarily around that time, this would have been, was when Ska was really starting to get a foothold where it never had been before namely bands like no doubt mm -hmm. certainly put ska on the map again i had listened to ska for a long time because of a band called fishbone back in the mid 80s and uh, late 80s it's kind of like a ska funk uh, mix i considered doing one of their albums and i looked at the track list and it was 18 songs and i'm like i don't think i can do this one yet <laughs> yeah a lot of those 18 track probably six of them are 45 second longs they're more like uh, interludes oh so, okay yeah so it's really only like a 12 track record but i had been listening to it for a long time and it disappeared off the map in the early 90s and then made a resurgence in the mid 90s with bands like less than jake and no doubt the boss tones who i had known of obliquely but not that much much until the song the impression that i get from this album was released and i'm like hey that sounds sounds pretty cool it's fun it's party music it's energetic it's you know it's a good time so i picked up that cd and i loved it 
right away. But you, as a baby, had three records that were go-to records, no matter what. One was Fush You Mang by Smash Mouth. Another one was by Matchbox 20. It was their first record. You loved that record. And then the third one was this one. And this one always put you in a good mood. As soon as I put it on, you were in a great mood. If you were having the worst day, you know, teething or whatever, or just miserable, I'd put this record on and pick you up and carry around the house and you absolutely love it. So, <laughs> I mean, that was essentially why I played this album to death. Right. I liked the album. I always did. But I think I grew to love the album because it was so predominant in the household for so long. Upon listening to the album again now, I don't remember much past impression that I get. I don't remember a lot of the back half of the album. I was listening to it and I'm like, kind of maybe sounds familiar, but I don't know if it sounds familiar because it sounds like other parts of the album or if it sounds familiar because I listened to it. I really only remember Noise Brigade to impression that I get and maybe a little bit of Let's Face It. And I'd say that's probably pretty accurate. First of all, it's like a 33 minute record, so you could blast through it pretty easily yeah it's short but i think by like track four or five we were through whatever angry moments you were having and mm. we kind of moved on to something else right so i think the salve came in the first four or five songs that you loved in the back half of the record like you pointed out in your description is a lot more aggressive it's a lot darker it's not nearly as happy and ebullient as like the first half is so i don't think that second half would have stuck with you as much because i probably didn't play it as often right it was an interesting thing to revisit for sure and what really struck me about this album though is that for a long time I've been under the impression that people think ska is very silly, like very goofy. Like the general sound of it, it's super bouncy, like it's just a little cheesy. And because of the way that the horns are implemented, they sound just exceptionally bright and loud and bombastic. Who would have thought that this album being like this is so tied into such important topics? But ska, I feel like, has a really bad rap. <laughs> oh, it, it for sure does and you go back to a band like fishbone and fishbone was way out in front of the curve speaking about socio-cultural economic issues mm -hmm. with the african-american community i mean it's hugely staunchly political in sections like you can't take the whole album and say it's a political album but you can certainly take bits and pieces of a record like the reality of my surroundings that has songs like fight the youth and all these things where it's really talking very specifically about socio-economic issues and struggles and racial struggles and then on the flip side of that you have essentially a song about having sex in a graveyard called bone in a boneyard i mean it's <laughs> it's i mean it's completely ridiculous because they are polar opposites yeah Frankly, me, I wouldn't go see the Boston's, you know, for a political rally. I would go see the Boston's to have a few beers and let a lot of energy fly. Yeah. You know, it's a party band. A lot like Less Than Jake and No Doubt, those bands are party bands. Right. But that's such an interesting idea because this album was their breakout hit. They had some kind of minor success with their other albums, more in like the ska sphere, but this one really blew up. But I was reading that this album was the first time that they really began to tackle bigger themes. And this is the one that then blew up. They were doing mm. punk and they like built their own form of ska, which introduced a lot of these punk elements. And punk is inherently anti-establishment and has some of those social themes. But this is the album that really took that into a different level. There's a 20-year retrospective by Kenneth Partridge on Billboard where he's talking about they'd never really taken on political songwriting, but they were heavily influenced by The Clash and Two-Tone ska heroes, The Specials, and The Selector, who made Made opposing racism their primary mission. Mm, that's interesting. I can see that. The specials for sure. I don't know how much of that is coincidental. Right. You know, did this album get popular because it was more of a statement or did it get popular because at the time this style of music was finally starting to hit its stride? A right. brief stride for sure, but it's stride nonetheless. And they may have just had that perfect storm of success at the right time because of what was popular and able to inject that political stance into it. Right. I obviously I was one 
at the time that this Correct. album came out. So <laughs> was there anything going on in the late 90s that would have kind of mirrored this sentiment? Or was it more just, yeah, this is really fun, and then it just so happens to have that? 96, 97, it's a blank political slate. Clinton was president. We were probably getting close to the Lewinsky scandal. Mm -hmm. We were on and off, not war, but police actions in Bosnia and Somalia. It wasn't like... It wasn't like now. Right. It wasn't like the early 90s where you had, you know, L.A. on fire with riots, Rodney King stuff. It was kind of a gray area politically. Right. So it's hard to say if there was something driving it. I mean, they obviously mighty, mighty Boston's. They're from Boston. I don't right. know what the political climate was in Boston in 95 through 97. So it's hard to say why they were writing such politically charged stuff and, you know, addiction-based stuff, which right. I think is more relevant. The other thing is maybe it had something to do with just the sheer accessibility of the album. And I talked about this a little bit. The album was very blank slate almost itself. It was a very understated album cover, and the opening half of the album is so much brighter than the second half. So you get this element of leading people into more of this sound, whereas otherwise they may not have tried it. And then also that second half allows their fan base that had been with them before to still have something to listen to in this. So they kind of perfectly rode that line between something new, something catchy and popular for people who hadn't listened to this before, haven't heard of this band or haven't tried this style of music and the people who had been listening to them their whole time because they mm. very devoted to their fan base from what I can tell. Oh yes. Very, very loyal fan base. A lot like Dropkick Murphys and stuff like that. There's bands that have those staunch followings that will, you know, ride or die. I don't think what you're describing is, it's not unique, but it was definitely more of a phenomenon, I think, in the 90s. Bands that portrayed themselves, and I'm not saying they did it maliciously, but portrayed themselves in a way that got certain songs popular. And then when someone went back and listened to their entire catalog, they're like, what is this? <laughs> uh, Sugar Ray did the same thing. Right. I mean, Sugar Ray has like these two really popular songs that sound nothing like the rest of their catalog. Mm -hmm. You put on the record and you're like, what? Until you get to Fly and you're like, oh yeah, the Fly from radio, but this doesn't sound like the same <laughs> band. This doesn't sound like, at what all is this? like what I was listening to. And that's what I think. It was a phenomenon at the time to get people in the door that where you'd write a hit single or you'd write a song that was popular mm -hmm. but that sounded really nothing like yourself. And then people go back and listen to the record and be utterly confused. I'm not saying that the Boston's did that on purpose, but if you go back and listen to everything that they've done before this record, this was certainly a, a shift in sound. A much punker feel to it. And what's interesting as well, uh, I say interesting a lot. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> When I was looking at the album reviews for this album, I had to go like two pages into Google to find anything akin, anything even close to a bad review. And yet this isn't in the Rolling Stones top 500 as far as I can tell. Oh, no way. Or anything like that. It almost received pretty much glowing reviews from what I can tell. There was even one review from Stephen Thompson for the AV Club, which is the closest thing to negative that I could find. But all he's saying is that it just sounds thinly arranged. Mm. He says the changes are more expansive than that. Dickie Barrett sings as much as he growls here while tracks like Royal Oil are so thinly arranged they sound like there are instruments missing. But for every misfire like the preachy title track, there's an infectious anthem that begs to be blared from every window in the city. Play the rascal song. He says song, not king. That's the sign, of a, that's the sign of a good, <laughs> good reviewer. <laughs> play, the, play the rascal play song. Play the rascal song. <laughs> or the impression that I get as loud as you can get away with and ask yourself if the boss tones aren't back. That's not a bad review. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't a bad review. It's a good album. It's You can't find anything negative to say because it's a fun, good album. I mean, it's not life-changing. It's not going to top any list, but it's certainly something that if you put on at a party, I think you, you're going to get some attention. I think people are going to like listening to it. And I've been hearing a lot of talks about the possibility of a fourth wave of ska, and there was the song called she's kerosene it was on the radio for a few months back in like 2019 
and it was very ska. Even the Boston's have been putting out music. They were going to put out an album this year, and then they unfortunately broke up, but they have, what, 11 albums? And this was the... the, Let's face it, was their fifth. Yeah, they kept churning records out. That's the Interrupters. Interrupters, right. She's kerosene. And it is pretty close to ska. Yeah, it's as much as it's as much as like a new wave of ska would sound like, I would imagine. I dig it. I'm sure if Kyle listens to this, he'll call me out because he knows that I can't stand saxophones and stuff like that in rock music. Right. And the, the exception is this style of music. Yeah. That's just straight up party music and i love it there's an interesting conversation just about the origins of ska to begin with ska originated in jamaica as much as almost every style of music i guess originates in jamaica (laughs) (laughs) the r&b reggae ska calypso all of this kind of stuff is all originates from jamaica and it morphed into the second wave the two-tone wave that was big in britain and dickie barrett actually has an interesting conversation about this where he was asked by John Gentile of punknews.org just like a really short interview it sounded like Dickie Barrett had like something to do like right after it <laughs> but he uh, asks a question right at the end of the u- interview that says why does the world need ska right now and this was in 2017 or 2018 and Dickie responds with I've been thinking about it a lot lately and I think ska is some sort of musical superhero When people need to feel good, it seems to show up at just the right time. I think that whatever was going on in Jamaica in the 50s with all the turmoil, it needed ska then, and it needed it in Margaret Thatcher's England, and we need it now. So do the math. When people are feeling down, they want to feel good. Ska is the thinking man's way of enjoying himself, and I'm glad we can provide that. It's a nice quote. (laughs) It is a nice quote. The conversation about, he says it's the thinking man's music, which Hmm. is itself almost a weird sentiment for the place that Ska has. I'm trying to parse exactly like his thought process for calling it that, because if you were to ask me what like the thinking man's music was, I wouldn't say Ska. I wouldn't say (laughs) Ska. (laughs) It's not the type of music that you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go digest these thoughts while listening to Ska. I'm going to go sit down in the dark and listen to some ska see and i would say it's not the exact opposite because i don't want to say it's the anti-thinking right man's music because i would say that's an insult but it's certainly man if i want to go feel good and have a good time and see a ska band i'm not thinking i'm yeah. like i said i'm going to have a few guinness and you know turn up the horns as loud as they go and have a good time and sweat and jump around and you know that's kind of what i want to do yeah. When I'm listening to Ska. On that point, from that retrospective by Kenneth Partridge, he says near the beginning of the article, he says, it's a record about racism, substance abuse, violence, and the numbing effects of mass media. You just couldn't tell because of all of the horns. <laughs> 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 that kind of exposes a very interesting point about this music and about music in general. One of the key things that I like to talk about is avoiding being reductive and not allowing yourself to look at something as having density or having depth because you're caught up on the surface level of it. You're caught Mm -hmm. up looking at just the, the tiny part that you can notice right away judging the book by its cover essentially and allowing yourself the opportunity to digest more things especially things that immediately seem not in your wheelhouse gives this greater insight into these things yeah you don't want to be reductive and just say oh it's party music or whatever but i mean for some people it really is and that's not a bad thing either not everything needs to have a point and sometimes the point is to not have a point and is to just be fun but the sheer ability of this album to both be intensely fun and intensely important is something that is incredibly interesting and it kind of goes into the band's intention and love for their music the thing is is that they write what they feel in the moment and they write in a way that connects themselves to what they're talking about but they're not looking for some overarching theme as far as i can tell none of the albums are meant to be concept albums no there's an interview with joe gittleman the bassist 
for WTBU, which is a radio station for Boston University by Danya Traumer. And they ask, so would you consider them concept albums? And Joe responds by saying, I really would not personally. I just think Dickie is very thoughtful. He pays a lot of attention to detail. If you look at the artwork on those three records, he himself has spent hundreds and hundreds of hours on each one, working with both illustrators and the person that does the layout and that kind of stuff. Um, Like those were all his specific vision, not just the cover, but every little piece of it that you see he imagined, he considered, and came up with himself. Again, I think the biggest uniting factor is that he imagined it that way and that it informed the creative process and what he wanted to talk about from record to record. So he had an idea, but he wasn't writing it in terms of this is a conversation on this specific thing and allowing themselves the space to explore different themes throughout the album. I think it's hard to write something with an intention, but it is really easy for intention to come about as a result of you working on something that you're passionate about. Oh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. There takes so much time to purposefully put metaphor in, but the really illuminating thing is when that meaning is discovered from outside. That meaning is discovered by other people. And I think that's one of the things that this podcast is really trying to do. And I think that's the point of a lot of those assignments in schools to find the meaning of things where you might think like, oh, he's just writing this. Like there's no additional meaning. Right. <laughs> there's additional meaning. He just doesn't know. There's always right. a, a lot point. Of, yeah. A lot of the times you don't have an idea what you're writing about until you've written about it. Yeah. And then you look at look back on it and go, holy crap. Yeah. That's a lot of myself there that I didn't realize I was even writing about at the time. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point, even for music like this. Then by having that come about organically and come about naturally, it allows for opportunities for important meaning to last longer. This album came out 25 years ago. A lot of the messages on the album are still, if not more relevant now than they were then. Agreed. A lot of stuff going on nowadays that really hoped would have been solved by then. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, unfortunately, no. Yeah, and I do want to talk about the reason that the band broke up a little bit. Okay. Some information came out in early 2022 of Dickie Barrett going on a podcast and talking about his stance on vaccines during the pandemic and then just vaccines in general. And he had a very anti-vaccine sentiment, which isn't really ideal, especially considering how problematic this whole situation has been and downplaying it in any way and playing up things that have been proven wrong, things that have been proven to be harmful and just using those platforms to share that kind of information is damaging and detrimental to society. And as a result, it ended up breaking up the band. I do want to point out that that's not to say that Dickie Barrett himself is a bad person. There's an incredible amount of evidence that he and the band did a lot of good and had a lot to say about really important issues. Barrett himself, there was an article for the Washington Post by T. Reese Shapiro about this album. It said that Barrett said the song was inspired partly by his upbringing as a child of the civil rights era and as a Boston resident as the city bused students to desegregate schools. And then Barrett himself is quoted to say, I learned that different was great and that the diversity and individuality of other people was what made them special. I wanted to say we're all human beings. You're not any better than anybody else for any reason. Which is in a really important sentiment, especially now and even then. But it's a difficult thing to parse at what point somebody should be forced to take consequence for their actions, especially the ones that can do a significant amount of harm to society. And I think that the band agrees with that point because very soon after that came out, or very soon before it came out, they broke up the band. It's such a touchy subject. Yeah. My point of view is he's entitled to his point of view, except when his point of view may be damaging to other people. Sure. If he wanted to sit in his living room and say, you know, I want to be an anti-vaxxer or whatever. I mean, that's his right. It is his right. Mm -hmm. But once he gets on a public forum and states whether he's pro or anti, it's a dangerous thing to do. 
Yeah. And clearly his bandmates disagreed with him. Yeah. And like I had mentioned in our kind of preliminary discussion, two weeks before they broke up the band, he had been the announcer for the Jimmy Kimmel show for like 14 years. And he left, quote unquote, left. Right. Within two weeks of being removed from that band, all around the same time as that interview showed up. So he obviously is feeling the consequences of his actions. And I hate to see someone lose their job and stuff like that. But you know, you have to be cognizant of the fact that taking a stance that can be proven to be against public health is probably not in his best interest. Yeah. The important thing that I wanted to say by bringing that up is that while his actions aren't excusable in that instance, he is suffering the repercussions and it also shouldn't completely overshadow everything else that he's done that's good. You would hope that it wouldn't. People are complex and people make mistakes and uh, not everyone is perfect and it's really about how you go about rectifying and being open to accepting that you may be wrong in instances. And there is an impetus of these people are in the limelight. They need to be more cognizant of what they say and what they do, to which there's another discussion that would need to be made regarding that. But sure. the important thing is, is that this band has done a lot of good and Dickie has done a lot of good. And not to say that this has been happening, but completely shunning the legacy of the band, completely shunning the legacy of what's come before, I think is more detrimental to the conversation than, say, acknowledging that that happened and working to prevent that from happening again in the future. I'd say that's fair. And I did want to leave off on a quote from him himself for Vanyaland by by Jason Greenow, where Dickie does say, I would prefer the issues being addressed in the song, the subject matter, was something in our rearview mirror at this point. And at the time I wrote it, although it was a simple message, and maybe even a little wide-eyed and a tad optimistic, it didn't seem like I was asking for too much. I was simply just asking for people to get along with each other and not judge each other based on their skin color or religious background or sexual orientation. It seems like a basic and sort of almost primitive desire. It seems like the very least we can do... And yet we still haven't managed to figure it out. Yeah, we're still there. We're still there. And there's still a lot of change to be made. And this example of somebody who is very, was very progressive, making a decision and taking a stance that isn't so progressive just kind of goes to show that there is still a lot more to go. And in some ways, it does represent this kind of two steps forward, one step back type situation. But two steps forward is still two steps forward. And... It's a good thing that bands like this exist, and it's hopeful that bands like this will continue to exist. I like that. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for joining me again this episode. Hopefully we'll be able to have you back again in the future. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's always fun to talk about music. Yeah, (laughs) especially because music is a really good touchstone for talking about important things and discussing important things because music itself is very political. Almost every single album that I've covered so far has something to say about society. (laughs) Always has been. Always has been. It's, a, it's just a really good vehicle for metaphor. Where can they find you? And what what do you do? Oh, geez. I'm the co-host of the Audio Judo podcast at audiojudo.com. Which Throughline is a spinoff of. Correct. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash audio judo or on Twitter at audio judo or Instagram audio underscore judo. Or you can look at our website, audiojudo.com. We have approaching 100 episodes now. We're getting close to the beginning of our fourth season, so very excited about that. Hopefully, after you give uh, Christian a listen, you'll come listen to our stuff. We're not as uh, well-researched as he is. Oh, you're plenty researched. (laughs) Probably a little more beer drinking on ours, but because there's two hosts on that one, there's a little bit more give and take and a little more laughter because there are two people. Not to say that Christian doesn't inject that into his show because he does. It's just his research is very uh, meticulous, and ours uh, sometimes is wrong. (laughs) And you have a lot of personal connections to the music as well, which is an interesting area to explore. 100%. But yeah, we'll be excited to have you come listen to ours, but I'm very proud of of this show as well, I think. It's a nice addition to, to the catalog. 
Oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode of Throughline with Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Let's Face It. And remember, everyone, just because you make a mistake doesn't make you a bad person. It's the way that you go about determining whether or not you're going to rectify the mistake and work to change that determines whether or not you are a bad person and if you have the capacity for growth. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.